Welcome to Macquarie Street, the national political podcast coming to you from the crucible of Australian democracy. Here's your host, Lyle Shelton. G'day and welcome. It's great to have your company. I love bringing this podcast to you and I hope you're getting something out of it and that you're able to share it with your friends and multiply the influence. We've got another packed show today and I'm looking forward to bringing you information on the relentless attack on Christian schools, SBS's apology to female rights campaigner Catherine Deves, and I'll be analysing a fascinating conversation between two intellectual giants. Don't touch that screen, stick around. Now, those of us working to turn the political and cultural tide often feel the enormity of the challenge. That's putting it mildly. We often feel it's more like trying to climb Mount Everest without oxygen or making a lone stand against an orc pack armed only with a walking stick. Many of us look for inspiration from wise leaders, and there are a few wiser than former Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson. His regular Conversations podcast gives some solace uh, to the battle-weary. However, a recent interview with prominent UK commentator Peter Hitchens, brother of the late atheist Christopher, shone a bright light on the growing debate about whether we should fight or retreat to the catacombs and wait it out. Now, Peter Hitchens is a former war correspondent. He's an author and currently writes a column for The Mail on Sunday. The context was a conversation about the war in Ukraine. Yes, Russia's invasion is evil, but it's not Gandalf versus the Orcs. And the conversation finished with furrowed brow musings on the rapid decline of the West. In the last five minutes of this podcast, the following fascinating exchange took place. Take a listen. There are those who would say that your prognosis for Western society and for the advancement of civilization more generally is, is too negative. Well, I hope they're right. <laughs> I, really I really hope they're right. Well, um, they, they well, I think, but I actually think they're wrong. I, I'm afraid it's very, it's, it's, it's even worse. Well, let me let me uh, just run this by idea by you. There are those I, I've run across you know, highly intelligent people in Australia who would agree with your analysis, but say, hang on, let's not un- overlook the possibility and the importance of trying to do what the, if you like, the monasteries did in the middle. Uh, the Benedict's option. Yeah. Rather, well, rather. not only that, keeping alive the learning the commitment to freedom, the sort of concepts that have undergirded our way of life uh, and trying to make certain... But how do you do that? Well, that's that's the question. Are there ways, you know, they're starting uh, new I mean, institutions, they're fighting the decay, which you've been doing, and you've become, I think, if you don't mind me saying so at times, uh, you get a bit frustrated that people won't listen, but people are trying it. They want to have a go. Well, good luck to them. I'm not against people trying. Uh, uh, I'm not even going to say I think they will fail, but I, at the moment it looks pretty dark to me. And one of the worst things about it is the lack of alarm. Now, I was on a run listening to this through my AirPod Pros, but I stopped dead in my tracks. Lack of alarm. Now, for those of us who are political and cultural warriors, this has always been the problem. But when two mild-mannered statesmen, both intellectual giants, are saying this, will we not wake up? Immediately prior to this exchange, Anderson asked Hitchens for his take on the UK Equality Act introduced in 2010, which purportedly was to stop discrimination on the basis of race, gender and sexuality. Australia has similar laws. Instead, Hitchens claims it has led to soft totalitarianism against dissenters of same-sex marriage, uh, the transgender agenda, critical race theory or other bastions of cultural Marxism. How did people think that the Enlightenment comes to an end. 
uh, possibly by you know, the, the great the, you know, the boot stamping on a human face forever, but in fact it, it, it comes softly, gently, slowly, uh, almost kindly. And then after 20 or 30 years of it, uh, there is no real freedom of speech or thought. Wow. Despite Hitchens' melancholy view of the state of our politics and culture, Family First is committed to raising a party political voice for freedom of speech, association and religion. What choice do we have? As Hitchens said, people like us having a crack, good luck to them, I'm not against people trying, I'm not even going to say I think they will fail, end quote. He may well be right if no one is prepared to stand up and oppose this decline into darkness. After all, Evil things happen when good people do nothing, but we don't have to throw our hands up in despair and do nothing. We can join a movement. We can push back and not by ourselves alone facing the world, but rather with a group of like-minded individuals prepared to risk a backlash to make our society better. Family First is that group and your support, uh, you can support and contribute to the fight. Now, unreported by most of the mainstream media was a quiet apology last week from SBS to the Liberals' candidate for Warringah, Catherine Deves. During the election, uh, she was the victim of a vicious media pylon aimed at destroying her simply because she campaigns for fairness in girls' and women's sport. She's also concerned about irreversible surgical damage to children who undergo sex change operations as a result of LGBTIQA plus gender fluid ideology taught in schools. Even so-called liberal moderates joined the feeding frenzy calling for her to be dumped because she would not tow the rainbow line. SBS, along with almost all the woke mainstream media, perniciously misrepresented Dee's past social media posts including one about biological men identifying as women in the British prison system. Deves had correctly tweeted that half of all men identifying as women in prison were sex offenders, compared to just 20% in the non-transgendered prison population. Deves had used the British term estate when referring to the prison population, something willfully lost on the incurious SBS. SBS and numerous other mainstream media outlets, including the ABC, wrongly asserted Deves was labelling the non-prison trans population as sex offenders. An SBS World News viewer wrote to SBS to complain. I am writing about to complain about your reporting on SBS News about Kath Deves, in which uh, she states, as uh, you state that she tweeted, quote, half of all men with trans identities are sex offenders. The viewer went on, this badly misrepresents Deve's comments. The next part is compared with less than 20% for the rest of the male estate, i.e. the male prison estate, as is referred in England. It is extremely poor journalistic practice to take a quote out of context that is meaning uh, that, that its meaning is totally misrepresentative. Instead, your audience now has been misled into thinking that Miss Steves believes that half of all transgendered people are sex offenders, which is false. Now, late last month, acting SBS Ombudsman Amy Stockwell responded, writing the following back to the concerned viewer. SBS World News audiences were directed to a part of that quote separated uh, from a qualifying phrase. While the qualification may well have been opaque for everyday Australian audiences, it was an error in the report and as such, it is a breach of the SBS code in relation to accuracy. She went on, SBS apologises for the breach of the SBS code. Now, SBS should broadcast that apology. 
the ABC and the rest of the media and political class who did their utmost to demonise and destroy Deves should also apologise. With the election now over and a parliament dominated by woke, Labor, Teal and Green politicians, hope for a bill to save women's sport and to get the genderqueer ideology out of children's education is now dashed. Misreporting like this doesn't help advance this cause. The simple situation is, is that we have not invested enough in coal and gas infrastructure. And when you restrict the supply of something, the price of those things go up. And so because we have not got coal mines approved, we've shut down coal-fired power stations, haven't invested in the older ones, uh, and we have been restricting gas developments, especially in Victoria and New South Wales, well, we don't have as much of the supply of the energy we need uh, to provide reliable and affordable power to people and therefore the price is going up. So we've got to fix those underlying issues of supply, uh, of investment in uh, this, these types of energy because the, we have invested a lot in renewable energy but that is clearly just not ready for prime time and it keeps getting shown up time and time again and we hear every excuse under the sun from the renewable energy industry about why uh, the apparent record investments are not delivering payoffs but it's about time we actually reflect on the fundamentals here and invest back in reliable energy. That was one of the few sane voices in Australian politics, Queensland National Senator Matt Canavan. As woke South Australian politicians recently declared a climate emergency, the reality of Australia's ill-thought-out climate policy is biting families and businesses. Regulators are warning of a shortage of gas and the possibility of electricity blackouts for no other reason than bad politics. Our nation is blessed with some of the world's most abundant reserves of energy. Yet some people may not be able to heat their homes this winter and all of us are paying through the nose. How did it come to this? The answer lies in the shutting of discussion on climate policy. This has been as ruthless and premature as the shutting of coal-fired power stations, which have not been replaced with a suitable or stable generating capacity. Regardless of where one sits in the debate about the impact of small quantities of human-generated CO2 uh, joining the vast array of naturally occurring CO2 in the atmosphere, it is an incontrovertible fact that our energy policies are driving prices through the roof and reliability through the floor. Meanwhile, China, which keeps opening new coal-fired power stations, emits more CO2 every 16 days than Australia's annual contribution. This will not stop anytime soon. Even our chief scientist said Australia's contribution could not influence the temperature of the planet. Yet, politicians seem happy for some pensioners to freeze this winter because they can't afford rising utility bills. For sure, the war in Ukraine is having an impact on global prices, but that is driving the United Kingdom and Europe back to cheaper and more reliable fossil fuels, while Australia jettisons reliable energy sources without viable replacements. The LNP's Matt Canavan was not wrong to observe that net zero as a policy aim in Europe is dead. Reality is biting. The UK is rethinking plans to close coal mines because windmills and solar panels cannot do the job. At this crucial moment for energy security, Australians from rich suburbs who are largely insulated from rising electricity and gas prices have populated our parliament with uncosted demand, with, with people who have uncosted demands. Uh, there is no consideration of or debate about the consequences. What happens if there is not enough power after the premature closes, closures? 
They don't know. Mumbling something about battery storage isn't going to cut it when the lights go out. Even the new Nationals leader, David Littleproud, is turning teal. As outgoing leader Barnaby Joyce now admits that net zero is not a realistic objective. Joyce wrote on Facebook last week, climate policy affects how much is in your wallet and this is becoming more and more evident each day. The question is, are you willing to pay the price for the policy? End quote. Now, it's a shame that Barnaby was not writing us on Facebook at the time that he was conjoling his party room to get on board with Net Zero before Scott Morrison jetted off to the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow last year. Discussions of green policy consequences have not formed part of the election discourse. Politicians sadly kowtow to politically correct woke orthodoxy rather than telling the truth, afraid it would lose them votes of young apocalyptic ideologues. But these energy shortages and price hikes are our moment of truth, and it was completely, it's been a completely avoidable crisis. We all want to help the environment, but we need a truthful debate about the costs versus the benefits. To get that, we must put principled and courageous people in our parliaments. The urgent need for religious freedom uh, protection was further highlighted last month after a Queensland religious school, City Point Christian College, was reported to the Human Rights Commission for its religious beliefs. Another Brisbane school, Westside Christian College, also came under attack from political activists and the Queensland Labor government. In intolerant multicultural Australia with its Judeo-Christian heritage, this would have been unthinkable five years ago. Even today, most mainstream Australians accept and tolerate religions such as Christianity, Islam, Judaism and others, promoting virtues which favour traditional family formation and resilience. Sadly, a small group of political activists do not. They say religious schools are harmful and they are using taxpayer-funded legal action to force conformity with their worldview. As a Christian school, City Point Christian College in Brisbane quite reasonably asked parents to agree to its Christian views on sexuality, marriage and gender. In part, policies like this are designed to protect girls' private spaces such as toilets and change rooms and fairness in sport. Westside's crime was advertising for staff who shared their views on marriage. But City Point and its parent community now face potentially expensive and lengthy legal action for upholding their religious and scientific beliefs about gender. A small group of parents uh, of former students have mounted the legal action with the help of taxpayer-funded LGBT legal services. During the 2017 same-sex marriage debate, leaders of Australian marriage equality, such as Tony Abbott's sister Christine Foster, promised that Christian schools would be free to uphold their ethos. Religious institutions and schools are free and are protected by our existing legislation and constitution to teach their beliefs. That will not change because same-sex couples can get married, Foster told Sky News at the time. Less than five years on, They've reneged and are going after Christian schools. So far, rainbow activists are yet to target Muslim, Hindu and Jewish schools which share the same values. But they seem to see Christian schools as low-hanging fruit. Earlier this year, City Point followed the advice of the then Turnbull government's Ruddick Review into Religious Freedom and stated its Christian beliefs up front and in good faith for parents as part of an enrolment contract. 
According to media reports, the move was prompted in part by a male student now identifying as a female, insisting that he wear a dress to the school formal in defiance of the school's policy and beliefs on the science of gender. Confected outrage in mainstream media followed, causing the then Prime Minister Scott Morrison, himself a Christian, to say he did not agree with City Point's Christian enrolment policy. The Fuhrer fed into parliamentary debate on the Religious Discrimination Bill, leading to five Liberals crossing the floor to join Labor and the Greens in defeating it earlier this year. Four out of the five Liberals lost uh, their seat at the May 21 election. Now, rainbow activists claim the Sex Discrimination Act, as amended by the Gillard government in 2013, gives religious schools the power to expel same-sex attracted children, identifying as the opposite gender. This is a power not sought or used by Christian schools. However, religious schools and their parent communities are fighting for the right to continue to teach their religious views of marriage, sexuality and the science of biological gender. Now, Family First supports the right of religious schools to teach and uphold their ethos and will continue to fight for that in the political arena. Well, that's it for another week. I really appreciate your company. Before I go, I just want to uh, offer a correction on something I said in my interview last week with Dave Pellow. I mentioned that Family First was the only party, or certainly one of the few, that is pro-life in fighting for the sanctity of life from conception to natural death. Now, viewer Peter pointed out to me during the week that there are some others who hold this view, such as the Democratic Labor Party, which my good friend Bernie Finn has just joined, and the Australian Family Party, headed by former Senator Bob Day. I think also I mentioned that the Australian Christians in WA also hold these views. Now, many people have asked me about the potential fragmentation of the vote uh, given uh, the proliferation of minor parties on the centre-right. I want to assure you that Family First is doing its best to work with all of these groups and to make sure that preference arrangements in the future at elections favour like-minded parties so that the cause is achieved. That cause is, of course, getting principled and courageous voices into the parliaments around the nation who will fight for the family, for freedom, and for the Judeo-Christian ethos upon which this nation was built. So thanks again for your company this week. Please sign up for our updates at familyfirstparty.org.au. That's familyfirstparty.org.au. Sign up for updates. And until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.